Welcome to the Non-Binary Body Image Project podcast. What you are about to hear is the introduction to this podcast that I recorded on January 2nd, 2021. Since the recording of my story, I've had the pleasure and honor of sitting with three more NB folks and listening to their journeys with food, body image, and gender dysphoria. I have felt deeply impacted and helped by hearing these stories. And I cannot wait to share these interviews with you. However, I am still in the process of collecting and editing stories. And so the next episodes will probably be released sometime in April. I'm doing my ADHD a favor and getting all of the interviews and editing out of the way before sharing these stories with the world. Also, as you listen, please keep in mind that I am not an expert audio editor and I am literally jerry-rigging this shit together on my phone. And as much as my perfectionism wants this to be capital P-E-R-F-E-C-T, it is simply not. I'm not working out of a sound studio, and so you will hear background noises. And that's okay, because that's life. And because what I have to offer you is real. So in that spirit, I am releasing this imperfect and raw telling of my struggle and recovery with food in honor of the last day of National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. It feels really important because transgender and non-binary folk have an extremely high incidence rate of disordered eating and eating disorder behaviors. According to the Duke Center for Eating Disorders, 75% of transgender and non-binary people polled in a recent study reported symptoms related to binge eating, vomiting, and other compensatory behaviors, the use of over-exercise, fasting, and restricting to intentionally control or shape their bodies. Eating disorders have the highest mortality rate out of any mental illness. This is a crisis in our community, and it cannot be taken lightly. We must keep speaking. So, Without further ado, I invite you to settle in and listen as I pour out my guts and why this project is so important to me. I am scared shitless to be so vulnerable. And I truly believe in the healing power of storytelling. I also wanna give a special thank you to Kurt Rivandera for the lovely intro music you just heard and to Jai Meyer for the beautiful logo accompanying this podcast. You'll get to hear from both of these non-binary babes later on in the season. Welcome to the Non-Binary Body Image Project, a safe space for all bodies and all genders. Hi, my name is Nika Salvaggio. I mean, I guess it depends on the day what my name is. Um, It's a complicated subject for me, but that's not what we're here to talk about, although it probably should be. And as much as I don't want to talk about it, I guess I have to. I mean, I am trying to host my own podcast and all, so I guess it's good that we get my name clear right off the bat. Um, so I introduced myself as Nika, but as of late, um, Nico has been feeling better for me. And that's relevant because... That would be, let's see, the fifth 
sixth iteration of my name that I've gone through in my 31 years walking on this planet. Um, it's so hard to know even where to start. I guess I'll start at the beginning. Um, why I'm here, why I'm wanting to talk about body image and being non-binary and gender non-conforming and wanting to create a safe space, a safe platform for other trans folk, non-binary folk and gender non-conforming folk to share their voices and their stories and their experiences with their bodies. Um, (laughs) And while I don't want this podcast to be about adoption, I can't escape it when talking about body image and my name and my gender because it impacts every level of all of those things. Um, So yeah, my name. Let's get back to that. I was born Dominica. Dominica Teresa Diafaria. Very Italian, if you can't tell. And my mom, my birth mom, Diane, called me her Bobita Nica, baby Nica. And she named me Dominica after my grandfather. Because when you make, uh, when you put an A at the end of a name, it makes it quote unquote feminine. <laughs> Maybe that was the first mistake. But anyway, she named me that because she wanted to honor her dad and also because Dominica translated in Italian means the light of God. And my mom viewed me as her saving light of God. She hoped that becoming pregnant with me would turn her life around in a way that her previous two kids did not. You know, like many adoptee stories, mine is rife with strife and poverty and addiction and sex work and generational patterns of abuse and abandonment. (laughs) Kind of like a lot of trans stories too, huh? When I was placed in foster care, I started being called Nikki, and I don't remember exactly how or why that came about. Um, I know at first I spelled it N-I-C-K-I, and I liked the way that Nick looked better on the page than something as complicated and feminine sounding as Dominica, Nika. And I was placed in foster care when I was four. So by that point, I didn't really have much of a gender identity so much as um, I just knew I didn't really want to be a girl. I wasn't really interested in girly things. I felt really confused by girls. I made friends much more easily with the you know, assigned male at birth folk at my daycare and in my neighborhood uh, after foster care. You know, (laughs) I was called a tomboy also um, during that time. I had a bowl cut and looked like a little dude, whatever that means. Um, Loved climbing trees and going fishing with my foster father and learning about the natural world and but there was some definitely um, some jealousy and some 
weirdness between my foster parents uh, around how I should be spending my time and what sort of activities were good for me and also how I should be dressing and you know my foster mother really really wanted me to see me in these like I mean they were pretty but frilly little girl dresses and I would just throw the biggest tantrums I'm talking like velociraptor status like laying my ground on the body kicking screaming biting scratching I mean this wasn't all about dresses I did have reactive attachment as a kid Um, and if you don't know what that is it's essentially um, when love or affection or um, caretaking is perceived as a threat and rejected because it in my life before foster care had been a threat and I mean it remained a threat in the system but we're not here to talk about the gritty details of that yeah so I was Nikki for a long time for a really long time probably the longest time of my life um from around age four till 27 it did change spellings in there. I think right around eight or nine, I changed it from N-I-C-K-I to N-I-K-K-I because it looked more feminine. And by that time, I was starting to notice that I did not fit in with the other girls um, and that that was a danger to me socially. And so I needed to figure out how to play well with others. And I don't know, I thought that extra K might help things out. It didn't really, you know, it wasn't until age 27 that, um, (laughs) I was even able to consider exploring my sexuality or my gender identity because up until that point, which 27, by the way, is the age that I witnessed the death of my birth mother not just witnessed her death, but had to take active participation in it. She was um, part of a accident where her oxygen tank exploded and lit half of her face on fire. And it remains to be seen whether or not this was an accident or a homicide, but either way, the results were the same. She was brain dead, went into a coma, gone. And I had to be the one to make the choice whether or not to take her off of life support after our whole lives spent apart with only a few meetings as an adult in my adult life. Meetings in which I was unable to access forgiveness or calm down the fires of my rage for her abandonment or the ways in which um, I felt harmed by her. The rage that I had for being adopted, for not feeling a sense of belonging or fit in my adoptive family, the rage for not even knowing what my fucking name is, what to call myself. But then she died, and I had to be the one to decide whether her life ended, even though she was brain dead. And I held her hand as she passed. In that moment, that moment above everything else in my life, gave me sharp, cold clarity and urgency 
to get off the path, the quote-unquote path of acceptability and, um, you know, the right way to be in the world. At that point, when I was 27, I was uh, married. I had been in a relationship for 10 years, from 18 to 28 is when my divorce was finalized, so 10 years. I considered myself a cisgendered, straight woman. I had earned my master's degree in counseling, clinical mental health counseling. I had worked in the field of eating disorders for nearly a decade. And yeah, my life on paper looked pretty good. But that death, that death, that death. After that happened, I started going by Nika again. You'll remember at the beginning of this story, that's what my mother called me before I was taken from her care. Bobita Nika. And in the trauma of my divorce and separation and coming out to myself and to my relationship and the people in my life, um, I needed to choose a new last name for myself. You know, Diafaria is beautiful and it's Italian and it honors my roots, but I wasn't raised with them. Sorensen, my adoptive name, never felt right. Just doesn't fit. Step in, my married name, I certainly wasn't going to keep that. So I needed to come up with a new name. And in my new name, I chose to honor the parts of me that I had always been too scared to let see the light of day. Those feral, untamable, wild, savage parts of me. Those parts that don't really have a gender. And if they do, it shifts. Those parts that are attracted to people because of their souls and their hearts and their minds and their spirits not because of what's between their legs or what their body looks like. So I chose a new name, and that name came to me in a dream, and it was Salvaggio. I still stumble sometimes saying it because that new name and I are becoming friends, but it roughly translated means wild, uninhibited, tomboyish, savage. And so now my name means the savage light of God. That's pretty cool. So I've told you this really long meandering story of what I call myself and why and how I came to be that way, but I haven't touched it all upon the premise of this podcast, which is body image. Well, I mentioned just a little bit ago about the awakening I experienced as a result of my birth mother passing and being present for that. What I failed to mention was that that was also the impetus of me beginning a now four-year-long struggle with unrecognized and untreated avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. 
a close cousin to anorexia, um, just without the intensity of body image component. It generally um, is experienced as just a lack of desire to eat. A lot of times it shows up in kids as picky eating. Uh, I was definitely a picky eater as a kid. Um, When I was placed in foster care, I ate five things. Raw hot dogs, canned green beans, ramen noodles, mac and cheese, and pizza. Pizza without the cheese, mind you. Um, And that's because, you know, those were the foods that were available to me before I was placed in foster care. You know, I experienced a lot of food insecurity as a young, young child. And yeah, after my mom died, food became unbearable. Every time I took a bite, it felt like I was chewing gravel. It still feels this way. Um, And at first... I didn't recognize it as an eating disorder because I had already been there, done that. I was in recovery from my eating disorder. I have 11 years of recovery from bulimia. Um, You know, that started, I I struggled with that from age 10 to 20. And that started the same year that I was adopted by my foster parents, foster parent, correction, only my foster mother adopted me and became my adoptive mother. My foster father did not because that was also the same year that they got divorced. And I didn't have any way of expressing all the pain I felt inside and all the fear and terror, really. Terror is a better word. Um, And rage, so much rage than having it just come up my throat. But this go around, you know, It looked different and it felt different. Before, when I was struggling with bulimia, it was because I wasn't good at expressing myself. It was because I thought that if I was just small and and feminine and perfect even, then I would be safe and I would be loved. Um, And as a teen, you know, after my parents' divorce, we moved from the Chicago area to the rural Bible Belt of Southern Indiana. And I don't know if you know much about that place, but um, it's not generally a safe place to be different. Yeah. (laughs) So you might by now be getting a sense of why it uh, has taken me so long, why it took me till 27 to even begin looking at my sexuality, my gender. All the circumstances of my life didn't really lead me to have space for that up until then. Um, so yeah, moving right along, I'm a meandering storyteller, but here we are. It's my podcast, so I can be as meandering as I want. After my mom died, I stopped being able to eat. And after nearly a decade of working with and treating folks who struggle with eating disorders, I couldn't recognize it in myself because I was in such deep denial. Um, and I really needed I really needed that old pattern of hunger and restriction to keep me feeling safe. And there's so much tied up in that aside from body image and my gender identity, you know, childhood trauma stuff. Like, you know, sometimes when I was really little, if I got hungry enough, meaning... If I waited long enough, 
then mom would come back. If I got hungry enough, mom would come back. And so I think my body just kind of, it saw her die and it was like, no, 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 no. This can't be true. If I get hungry enough, she'll come back. And then I started um, getting a lot of attention and validation for the weight that I had lost. Um, And it made me feel powerful to be in what our culture assigns as being a valuable body or a worthy body or a beautiful body, right? And also, it made me feel safer because with weight loss, the some of the aspects of my body that I didn't feel super comfortable with, um, you know, the parts of me that other folks would deem feminine, like, you know, my tits, my ass, all but disappeared. And well, that was pretty great because then I didn't have to worry about how those things were perceived by other people. It made me feel like I belong to the in-between. Hunger is a state of belonging to the in-between. And then also one added layer, being in a less feminine and appearing body helped me feel safer because I felt less likely to be assaulted or attacked by people assigned male at birth. I, I know, I know, logically, that this doesn't make any sense because I've been assaulted many times in the past four years. And guess what? I was really underweight every time. So it clearly didn't protect me. Um, But there's still this deeply ingrained fear that if I take up space with a body that other people perceive as female, I'm inviting violence upon myself. Ironically enough, (laughs) when I think about taking up space and being my full self as a visibly transgender person out in the world, I also feel unsafe and like I'm inviting violence. And so I guess the real question there is, how do I learn how to access a sense of safety in my body even if I'm not actually safe? It's not fucked up that those are the questions that need to be asked. How in the world did I not get to this beforehand? My pronouns. My pronouns are they, them. I use those pronouns because they feel the most accurate to my being. I'm a static being. I don't stay the same all of the time. And um, it really depends on the day, how I'm feeling in my gender. Some days I feel extra femmy and I slap on a red lip and I feel great. And other days I do not feel that way. And I feel like I just want to be one of the bros and other days neither of those things feels good or right and I'm, I'm something else I'm somewhere in between um, an amalgamation of all of the genders so to speak and some days I have no gender at all some days my gender doesn't even feel human maybe I'm feeling particularly alien that day or um 
<laughs> I feel closer to a flower or a plant than I do to a person. And if you uh, have never considered these facets of gender or experiences of gender that, that operate outside of the binary, then I invite you to receive my experience with curiosity instead of condemnation or judgment. A person like me, the only way to feel full and free in the world is to give space and voice to all facets and aspects of my existence. In this body, this body of mine that so clearly to the outside world does not match what I say that I feel, what I actually do feel. So how did we get here today recording this podcast on the second day of January 2021? Hallelujah, we made it through 2020. Well, I mentioned it's been almost four years since my mom died, and it took me a long, long time to come out of denial that I was struggling with an eating disorder. And um, part of the reason I was able to come out of denial is because I had a friend who, on a socially distanced coffee date outside, expressed concern to me because they could see that I had lost more weight. And they said that I was disappearing before their eyes. And mind you, this was, you know, the year 2020. So I've had no shortage of stressors and hard times in my life this year, um, as all of us have, I know. Uh, But at that particular moment in time, the uh, wildfires in Oregon had just ended and I was living in Portland. And there was a period of two weeks there where I couldn't even exit my house or open the windows because the air was too dangerous to breathe. And so I spent two solid weeks locked alone in my apartment, unable to open the windows, smoke leaking in, just dissociating from terror. Because as you can imagine, as I've shared, I've had a lot of childhood trauma. Um, When I get triggered as an adult, and I don't use that word lightly, when I say triggered, I mean triggered in the fullest sense of that word, meaning that I'm having symptoms related to post-traumatic stress disorder, dissociation being one of them, dissociation being feeling out of your body, out of your skin, unable to connect to the present moment, unable to feel. And so in that two weeks, I dissociated a lot and... I forgot to eat a lot and I became smaller and smaller and smaller and constricted and constricted and constricted until it was bad enough that a friend said something to me. And I got to tell you that just like, it knocked the wind out of me, but it woke me the fuck up. And I am so grateful, so, 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 so grateful to that friend for saying that she was worried and for pointing out the reality that I couldn't see at that time, which was that after four years, continuing to struggle with adequately nourishing myself is no longer a normal grief response. It's something more. And so that was the impetus that got me to start looking into going into treatment, treatment for my eating disorder. Now, mind you, like I've shared, 
I spent nearly a decade working as an eating disorder therapist. And to think about entering one of these facilities, knowing all the flaws, all the fucked up parts of the systems that don't actually serve people well, um, and also knowing the benefit, the potential benefit of putting myself in a container like this to be forced to turn this pain feedback loop around. Because at this point, it had gotten so bad that every time I ate, not only was it, you know, the sensory stuff with the physical uncomfortability, but also just so fucking painful to put food in my body. Um, and so I just didn't want to eat because every time I ate, it hurt. Um, and in order to turn that around, I needed to surrender complete control of my eating and of my food. And I was, um, my health was compromised enough that I qualified to go to residential treatment, which is 24-hour care, where they feed you six meals a day, six times a day. And I am now almost two weeks out of that and really um, doing my damnedest to keep on schedule with that so I can continue restoring all the weight that I lost those four years ago. I'm just over halfway to my restoration goal and in the restoration process, I definitely started to notice the increased discomfort and increased gender dysphoria coming into my being as my body restores shape. Um, And as I get my tits and my ass back again, how that makes other people see me and treat me. Treatment was really, really helpful for me in getting routine and my body's hunger cues back online. Um, But you know what wasn't helpful? And this is where this podcast is being born out of. Um, What was not helpful was feeling unseen, unsafe, and constantly misgendered all day, every day, as a non-binary transgender person. Um, They were, uh, the treatment facility was told what my pronouns are before I got there. I was told on the way there, don't worry, all the staff knows, we're all going to do our best. And day one, from the get-go, she, her, she, her, she, her, she, her. But I got to tell you, um... It was good practice for me to just have to be so firm and admit and correcting people on my pronouns, but eventually it's like, by the end of the day, I was just so exhausted and spent because it's like every time that happens, um, it feels like getting a paper cut, right? Doesn't, it's not so bad on its own, but if you've got a million paper cuts on your body, by the end of the day, you're going to be raw and ragged and bleeding and it just was so painful for me especially as I'm restoring this weight that I've lost and I'm coming into this really dysphoric experience watching my body change and there's really not that many resources for transgender folk non-binary folk gender non-conforming folk with eating disorders Um, I think there's one treatment center in the country that has a specific transgender track Um, and it's just so maddening because transgender and gender non-conforming folk are a huge swath 
of the population that struggles with eating disorders. And how could we not? How could we not? Because when you think about what the relationship to food is, it's a relationship to nourishment. It's a relationship to being, it's a signal to your body saying, I am allowed to be here. I am allowed to exist. Not only am I allowed to exist, I am allowed to be full and nourished and experience pleasure. Now, when you think about that, when's the last time you saw someone lifting up trans bodies as having a right to exist, having a right to pleasure, having a right to nourishment? Um, I have a really hard time coming up with an example of that, what immediately flashes in my mind is of people arguing whether or not trans people have a right to use the bathroom in public, or if, you know, transgender people are an abomination of God. That doesn't really leave much room to have a healthy relationship with existence a healthy relationship with food and also if culture is a mirror culture is simultaneously telling non-binary transgender gender non-conforming people that not only do we not really exist we're not legitimate in our existence but also if we do exist we're wrong for existing and, and not just wrong, but like we're disgusting for existing and we're condemned for existing. And so if we don't have a cultural mirror in which we exist, what the fuck are we supposed to see when we look into the mirrors of our own lives? Do you exist in your mirror? Because I sure don't. <laughs> My reflection changes all the time. It's been that way since I was a really young child. Every time I look in the mirror, it's different. Um, early on in my eating disorder recovery from bulimia the first time, um, I had to just kind of like tell myself it didn't matter what I saw in the mirror because I couldn't trust it because it's not real. Because there's no way that a person can look so drastically different, you know, just like 10 minutes apart from checking. And to reflect each other's pain and to reflect, to reflect the truth of our existences so that we may begin healing work together of reclaiming our right, our right to good relation with food and with our bodies. And by the way, there is no right or wrong way to be trans. There's no such thing as not being trans enough. There's no right or wrong way to be non-binary. And there's no right or wrong way to be gender non-conforming or to be gender fluid. And those things can change. 
should also say that being that I've only been out in the world as a non-binary person for like out out I mean like on the internet um for a little over a year now and having only come out of the queer closet four years ago now um I still might make mistakes and I still might say the wrong thing as I learn how to fully exist in and be present with our beautiful community. If this happens, <laughs> not if, when this happens, I ask for the same grace that we need from each other in allowing me to have the opportunity to learn and to correct and to take accountability. Because in being a mirror, it's really important that I do those things too. And so, be interviewing different transgender, non-binary, gender non-conforming folks about their experiences with food and with their bodies and how they experience their bodies and what it means to them to be gender non-conforming. And um, at the same time as interviewing them, continuing to restore the weight that I lost uh, while I'm doing virtual intensive outpatient after doing residential treatment for my eating disorder. So I'm coming alongside you in this process. And I am just so, so grateful for your willingness to listen and to hold my story and also for your willingness to share your stories. And I'm really fucking excited to see where this goes, to see what it is that we're dealing with and how we can help each other with it. All right. All right, that's it for now. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Non-Binary Body Image Project with me, your host, Nico Salvaggio. I want to take this last moment to just acknowledge the land on which I reside um, and to recognize Her Majesty Queen Lulu Uokalani and the Hawaiian Kingdom and the Kanaka people who are stewards of this land. Thank you for hosting me and I give utmost thanks and pono to the Aina and to the people who live here. Thank you.